0: Today with Clare Byrne on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Cash and Carry Kitchens. At the heart of Irish homes for over 40 years, cashandcarrykitchens.ie
1: Email todaycb at rte.ie
0: We're heading around the world now. We've seen over the past two weeks some of the biggest countries in the world go to the polls, from Pakistan to Indonesia. What issues have been at play for the hundreds of millions who've been eligible to cast their vote? Well, to discuss this, I'm joined in the studio by Graeme Finlay, who's lecturer at the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD. Good morning, Graeme. Good Good to see you. So the one that's taking place today is the Indonesian general election. I've been watching the results, the early tallies, coming through on the wires this morning, 205 million people eligible to vote in the world's fourth largest country by population. So those exit polls, they're showing that the current Defence Minister is leading. So take us through what's at stake and what's been happening.
1: It's really a country we should spend more more time looking at because their elections are are a remarkable thing in a country of 17,000 islands, over 1,000 minorities, 700 languages or something like that. And yet they managed to have reasonably free and fair elections. Um, The term limits, which Jokowi, the very popular outgoing president, um, was limited by, are respected. The the populace really loves its democracy, having been a military dictatorship until uh, relative until the 90s. And uh, so it's democracy party is what they call it. And um, the poll workers have a party atmosphere. They're wearing superhero costumes and things like that. Indonesians are justly proud of their democracy, despite the fact that there are many problems which plague Indonesia. Mm -hmm. The former defense minister, uh, Prabowo, Prabowo Subianto, is running and he was defeated by Jokowi for the last two elections. And yet Jokowi's son is running as his vice president, which uh, suggests that he's going to win because Jokowi is incredibly popular. Uh, and also, but also... The his, cons- his
0: dad is popular, yeah, the, dad, the, outgoing the, the outgoing president. president
1: Jokowi is extremely popular. And uh, that is transferring both to his former opponent and to his son. Now, um... It's not clear whether he's going to get the 50% he needs to to avoid a runoff against his two opponents. Uh, And there are concerns that a, a sort of dynastic politics is developing in Indonesia... That uh, they very much want to avoid. If you look at really large countries, they very often have these families who have their own parties, which persist over over generations. Uh, and Indonesians are so conscious of their democracy; they want to avoid this idea that it becomes a mm-hmm. hereditary affair.
0: So, tell us about who's on the other side then to the to the dynasty. Well, they, they don't differ that much
1: from the in terms of their policies from from Prabowo. But you have Anies Baswedan, who is the former governor of Jakarta, and Ganjar Pranowo. And and one of the factors in this vote is not so much that people are against the Jokowi policies. Everyone endorses the idea that economic development, building more infrastructure is the way to go. So, And there's a massive youth vote. Over half the voters are under 40. And so they're all trying to court the youth vote by not offering different policies, not really talking as much about employment, which is what the youth are concerned about, but by making TikToks and dancing to K-pop. <laughs> and, and so, so uh, you know, NES is, is portraying himself as a sort of hipper version than he probably is. Uh, whereas uh, Genjar is uh, describing himself as the sort of man of the people.
0: And what about um, this issue, which became uh, one of the, the campaign issues in the election, moving the capital from Jakarta?
1: Yeah, Jakarta is a mega city. It also suffers from subsidence and flooding. And uh, a lot of people support the idea of moving it somewhere else, moving the operations, at least, of the government somewhere else. Uh, and so there is this proposal by Jokowi, which was one of his flagship proposals to move the the, the capital to... Uh, Borneo, which is more in the center of Indonesia, mm-hmm. uh, in an area called Kalimantan, uh, and they've named the capital Nusantara. So Nusantara doesn't exist yet. If you look at pictures of this area, it is forest. It is, you know, in large parts rainforest, which is home to protected species like orangutans. And, you know, there is some concern, um, even in Indonesia, that this will despoil what is, what is virgin rainforest. NES is the only uh, candidate who's who's not committed to the move, though. Uh, so so it looks like it, it, it will happen. Mm-hmm. It, it should be said that even though Prabowo is is very very popular. Maybe especially outside of Indonesia, there's a concern about um, his past human rights record because he is a former general and horrendous human rights violations were committed by the military in Indonesia under military rule. And and again, there's considerable repression after.
0: Well, I I just see now coming in this news that unofficial accounts say that Prabowo is on track to win in a single round. Does that surprise you, given what you saw in the lead-up to it?
1: It does, although maybe that people talk about the Jacobi effect. Um, so it's um, it's not a total surprise. Mm-hmm. It wasn't certain whether he would get the 50% or not, but it was well within the bounds of possibility. Jacoby is so popular that they talk about how any policy endorses, like moving the capital, suddenly gains uh, appro- approval and favorability in the eyes of the people. He, he really is, can change people's mind. And so this endorsement of Prabowo really seems to be working.
0: Okay, well the results are coming in on that one in Indonesia and since Pakistan went to the polls last Thursday, we've been seeing Pakistan in our news headlines to two former prime ministers running in that one. We're still waiting to find out though, aren't we, what the government
1: will look like? It's going to be very, very difficult. Pakistan is uh, what Indonesia is trying to avoid. Um, it has hereditary politics. Nawaz Sharif um, who, is the, who is expected to win because the military forgave all their past conflicts with him, it was actually beaten by Imran Khan's party, uh, which the military had done its best to prevent from being able to run at all. And uh, then you have Benazir Bhutto's son, who's the assassinated former uh, prime minister of Pakistan which is really a dynastic party as the third party. But, you know, a lot of people say Pakistan's elections are more like selections. Mm-hmm. And the military decides who's going to be able to run and then, accordingly, who's going to be able to win. So they, Imran Khan was, you know, the, the most famous cricketer in Pakistan, maybe one of the most famous cricketers in the world, you know, was prime minister until a bunch of charges which um, are are accused of being trumped up like corruption and even his the the legality of his marriage were used to have a non-confidence vote in in the in the assembly and then put him in jail and so he's been running from jail without being able to appear in person and they took his his party's name off the ballot as well didn't they they, 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 they his party hasn't been banned but they have to run as independents they can't run as a party mm-hmm. and the the image of a cricket bat which is vitally important in an an election where 40% of the electorate is illiterate, uh, was taken off the ballot. And so it made it very, very difficult for people to vote for them. And they've had a really remarkable strategy to turn this around. They've used a lot of local notables, maybe drawn from other parties, teachers, to do local community organizing. But more important, they've used AI To replicate Imran Khan speaking these speeches, which have been smuggled out of jail, uh, so that he can go around in a virtual way addressing the people. And it seems to have worked. Mm -hmm. The young people of Pakistan, another very young country... Um, seem to be defying the military and saying, we're not going to let you pick our leaders anymore.
0: Like that's a very innovative and modern way to have somebody in prison campaign to win votes. It's also very concerning when you look at what might happen in other democratic elections.
1: This is true. I mean, obviously, other parties could do the same. They could put words in Imran Khan's mouth. And uh, then where would we be?
0: OK, so what is the status, uh, state of play now, given that the election was last Thursday?
1: So they got the most votes, and, but these are all independents. So they don't have a party status. It's It's not clear whether they're going to get their share of the 60 seats in in the assembly which are um, given to women on a proportional basis in terms of what the parties get in the the actual election, which is run by first past the post, so you can get sort of a a a, a plurality getting somebody into office. There are also 10 seats reserved for non-Muslims in Pakistan, uh, which is interesting given the tremendous repression of non-Muslims in Pakistan. Um, It's not clear that they, because they're not, there as an actual official party, are going to get their part of those seats, which would help them form a government. What people think is going to happen, and it's urgent, they have to form a government by February 29th, uh, is that the two opposing parties to Han's party will try to pick off a lot of these independents and and bring them over Mm -hmm. into their particular camp so they can form a government. But other observers say, with such a result for Imran Han and his party, it will be really hard to keep them out of power in some way. So Mm -hmm. anything could happen.
0: You you have the military working against Imran Khan's party as well, and that's a very significant factor in Pakistan.
1: We really don't know what the military is going to do. Uh, They have not reacted to this thwarting of their attempt to just place Nawaz Sharif in power. I mean, Nawaz Sharif was in exile because he was fleeing the charges the military brought against him. And they even launched a coup against him. But this is how things work in Pakistan. They decided they'd rather go with Sharif, so he comes back, everything is forgiven, and he He runs as the military's candidate. We don't know what the military is going to to do. There are factions in the military, just like anything else. It's not just a security service. They also own businesses. Their roots are very, very deep in the Pakistani economy and so forth. What may help democracy in a Pakistani version sort of move on is the military doesn't have a solution for the tremendous problems which beset Pakistan, an inflation rate of 24% actual insurgencies within the country, but also serious conflicts with the Taliban in Afghanistan and uh, with India in Jammu and Kashmir. So uh, the military may want to let the civilians uh, carry the can for this for
0: some Mm -hmm. time. What happens then on the 29th if a government isn't formed?
1: I think they have to go back to to new elections, Mm -hmm. uh, which in a a country of that size, this is the fifth most populous country on earth, that is a huge enterprise. And, And again, the elections in Pakistan, unlike Indonesia, are marred, almost always, and certainly this time, by very serious electoral violence. There were bombs going off at candidates' headquarters and at polling stations and in various places before, during, and after the election. There are a number of court cases uh, in Pakistan's courts, which themselves are pretty um, servile to the military, Uh, going through right now because the Hans party really think that they were uh, that there was vote rigging on a quite serious scale and they're bringing it to the courts.
0: There's news on that. (laughs) I just see here coming in from Reuters that the political stalemate in Pakistan has ended with Sharif chosen to lead the country again.
1: There we go. So perhaps those two parties got it together. There you
0: go. Um, right, let's move to El Salvador then, because at the start of this month, they re-elected their president. He won a commanding victory, a proper landslide.
1: Why? So Nayib Bukele, who's the young, um, dynamic president of El Salvador, is one of the most popular leaders on earth. Uh, and that's because of a very complex set of uh, relationships between El Salvador and the United States, which has led to which did lead to serious gang violence. people of a certain age like myself, who grew up in the 1980s would associate El Salvador with state violence where death squads were were killing anybody opposed to their their rule uh, on behalf of the state, including um, um, American nuns and uh, the Archbishop of San Salvador, Oscar Romero. Uh, that violence led to a lot of Salvadorans fleeing to the United States where they eventually formed gangs for self-protection like Mara Salvatrucho or MS-13, which is a real bogeyman for American right-wingers. The U.S. arrested and deported a lot of them back to El Salvador, which led to a a really dramatic rise in gang violence in El Salvador, uh, which persisted until uh, at least the late 2016, 2017 era where it started to go down. But Bukele comes in and after a you know over a, a course of years, but especially after a truly shocking three days, where eighty-seven people were killed in gang violence in 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 among a country of six point six million people, so you can imagine what it would be like in Ireland. Yes, eighty-seven right? in three he days. Cracks down um, and builds a, a mega prison. He arrests seventy-five thousand people without warrants, without due process, strips them and humiliates them. You can see the pictures online. You know, hundreds and, and thousands of men crammed into very small space spaces, cages which ho- house eighty to a hundred men in bunks without mattresses. I mean, really draconian stuff. But El Salvador's murder rate goes from the worst in the Americas to the best in the Americas and one of the lowest murder rates in the world.
0: So clearly the population really liked this strategy. The population
1: loves it. So he got 85, almost 85% of the vote, uh, avoiding a runoff. (laughs) And almost all, it looks like he's going to get almost all the seats in the Assembly. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's, Not just about El Salvador, though. Uh, A lot of people in the region and around the world are looking at the success of his crackdown and thinking they can replicate it. And even American right wingers who um, also like to use gangs uh, like Mara Salvatrucha as bogeymen to beat the Democrats are are looking at it as maybe uh, Mm -hmm. uh, he could be a hero for them.
0: Is he right wing just solely on crime or is he right wing?
1: He's an interesting figure. He came up through the FMLN, which is the former rebel insurgency, which then became a political party. And uh, then he sort of defected and created his own Nuevas Ideas party. So he's more of a centrist. Um, What really characterizes uh, Bukele is his authoritarian tendencies. He wasn't supposed to be able to run immediately after his first term as president, but they worked out a, a way for him to step down for a short time before he could then immediately run again. And uh, he has described himself as the world's coolest dictator. uh, And he definitely wants to um, continue to govern El Salvador through a state of emergency with more draconian measures. And so the thing to watch for is whether he is going to mostly be a Mm -hmm. right, rather than leftist or rightist. And also,
0: as as you mentioned, what is really fascinating is whether... Other people will take leafs from his book. Uh, you know, when it came to that crackdown on crime, his right-wing tendencies and say, well, that is the route
1: to success. Yeah, he's no friend of human rights and he front-fronted, front, you know, uh, made, made that central to his acceptance speech. But... Uh, again, when we see these caravans in some cases, although I'm trying not to use that word because it's uh, the way it's being used in the United States, of people heading from Central America to the United States through Mexico, it's gang violence in many cases that they're feeling. They may be fleeing state violence against indigenous peoples or their political opponents, but it's often they're they're, they're fleeing the very high murder rates which come with, with crime and violence in, in, in some Central American countries. And, and so both the, the people in those countries um, can see that they can gain uh, electoral popul- popularity through it. Mm-hmm. But also I think uh, it would play well with, with people who are concerned about migration into the United States.
0: Graeme, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking us on, on that world tour this morning. That's Graeme Finley. Now, still to come on the programme in the next hour, on the 8th of March, we're all going to be asked to vote in two referendums and we're going to have a debate on both after 11. And what is the purpose of our dreams, Harry Barry and anne Craven will explain. Coming up next though we're going to be talking all about retrofits, the grants available what you need to do to get your hands on them. We'll have two experts here so if you have any questions 51551 is the text number. Text 51551 today with Claire Byrne on RTÉ Radio 1.